Well, in the middle of our long and thorough walk through 1 Corinthians, it gets us to 1 Corinthians chapter 7 today, and we'll be in 7 today and next weekend. It will probably bring up some stuff that we, you may want to talk further about. We're going to be here for it. I'll tell you more about that in a second. 1 Corinthians, what? 7. So let's put up verse 1. Paul writes this. Now, in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. By the way, the Greek translation there is use a woman. Uh, in a discarding way, but that's the juicy part of this first verse, but I really want to call your attention first to the first part. Now, in response to the matters that you wrote about, here's what's interesting. We know that Paul is writing to the church there, but they actually wrote to him. So it's a bit of a, uh, I'm using this loosely, but it's a bit of a dialogue. So Chloe's household, uh, I always like to inject this when it's uh, germane to what we're preaching, when it's in the text, but God used women. God uses women in the church. God uses women prominently in the church. And one of those was Chloe. And Chloe's household made Paul aware of some of the divisions that were happening, some of the, the thorny things, some of the problems that uh, he chose to address. But they addressed him. So they, here's, what, here's my point. Uh, he's responding in response to the matters that you wrote about. He's saying, hey, you guys have, you guys have asked me some questions. And so I don't think Paul was like, let me do a big, long theological treatise. I think he's answering their questions. It's Q&A time. First Corinthians is Q&A time. By the way, they wanted uh, answers to questions because look at what he would address uh, the next verse in verse 2. I mean, we get into it. Because sexual immorality is so common, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Remember verse 6, one of the maxims, one of the sayings, one of the values of that day in Corinth a very overtly sexualized city as food is for the stomach as stomach is for the food. The, the prevailing thought there is that you are just a bundle of appetites. And as a bundle of appetites, you're, you're an animal, you're primal. And as a bundle of appetites, all you need to do is just go fulfill that appetite. If you're hungry, you go for food. If you're wanting sex, I almost said something else, then you... Uh, you go for sex. And he's writing and saying, hey, there's this different way, but it's Q&A time here. And can I just say this? I don't want to, I think this bears mentioning. Um, this is a church that was walking, they were seeking to follow Jesus, not just to have a starting faith, but a staying faith. And they wanted to uh, follow up and they wanted to continue this gospel life and message, but they were finding it difficult in the culture in which they live. Can we get an amen there? Can anybody feel that way? Look, you ain't doing it right if you don't feel some strain between, you know, the way of Jesus and the culture. I, I say this often. I'll say it again. It's not living sanctimoniously. It's not living in self-righteousness. It's not living above others. It's not, you know, the gospel message, as one preacher said, it's just one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread. But I tell you what that guy, what God does for us is he, every man and every woman that wants to follow him, he'll reform you. He'll change you from the inside and out. And the goal is not to be squeezed into the mold of the culture, but to live differently. So they want to know how to do it. And here's what I know. It's the joy of being a pastor. If I can stay faithful and maintain integrity and lead well in God's grace and by the power of his spirit, I think I've got a little bit of job security because to follow Jesus, you're going to have questions in our culture. And by the way, I said it last week, I'll say it again this week, uh, the goal of church every Sunday is not to leave and say, I enjoyed it. And it's also not to say, I agreed with everything the preacher said. That's not the goal here. And if you disagree or something is, um, you put up a defensive wall, 
I respect that. I appreciate that. But I'm just saying, um, at what point do our disagreements make us part ways or hate each other or, or walk out? I mean, let, let's talk. Let's have, let's have a conversation. Here's what I love about this. Paul's going into Q&A mode with the church at Corinth from a distance, of course. But I think about Wednesday night. I'm pointing behind me here. Up on, I'm pointing to the direction of the third floor. But 112 people came on Wednesday night for a parenting workshop. 112 people filled up one of our new rooms called Steeple Hall and heard Dr. David Elkin talk about parenting. And in my Friday morning men's group, I asked a couple of the guys, the non-old guys in the group, I said, did you go to the parenting conference? Two of them said yes. And they spoke highly of it. One of them said to, to us on Friday morning, man, I wish he would have taken more questions. So in the spirit of that, in the spirit of 1 Corinthians 7, 1a, we, here's what I realize. That as a church, a 35-minute sermon on Sunday is not going to disciple you. And so most importantly, I would hope if you're a follower of Jesus that you would become an apprentice. That you would learn the ways to hear the word and read the word and study the word and memorize the word and meditate on the word. Just as a personal testimony, not a point of pride, it has changed my life. And it has brought to me all those modes of regular intake, honestly, on the daily. All of those modes of intake has transformed me. It's given me, 2 Timothy 3.16, correction and instruction and training in righteousness. In other words, it hurts sometimes. Isn't it funny how we're like, man, the church is so judgmental. And the church is, and we shouldn't be. But isn't it funny how we're like, church is so judgmental, church is so judgmental. Could it be sometimes you just don't want to be corrected? There's always that, Right? But look, if we're going to grow, we're going to need to be corrected. But with your questions, here's what we want to do. Lauren's already got it queued up, but I want to make you a promise in front of all of you. I did this at the earlier service and anybody watching online, but uh, we, we're going to begin real soon a midweek podcast and we're not expecting, you know, large numbers. It's not about that, but anybody that wants to get a recap of the message and what we're teaching and wants to uh, hear more about it. And we want to take your questions. So I already, I'm already setting it up for the next uh, few weeks, but any questions you have on marriage, sexuality, divorce, um, singleness, we'll talk about in a moment. Any of those, we would love to field those in this stretch of time in a midweek podcast. So hope you'll uh, be looking forward uh, to that. But we all have questions and we, we need to have them answered. We need to learn, we need to grow because the culture, listen, the things we're preaching about and we're not going out of our way to go after anybody. Do you get that? Do you see my heart here? This is in the text. We're preaching through this and so we're here. In verse 7 and 8, let me put that up. Paul says this. He says, I wish that all people were as I am. That's not a point of arrogance. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift and another has that. I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain uh, as I. Two times he uses that expression in verse 7 and 8 of chapter 7. So question for you Bible people and non-Bible people, was Paul single or married? Paul was single. But what you may not be aware of is that some leading scholars and historians think that Paul was widowed. Now, there's a lot to the backstory here that time won't allow, but I'll just put it simply, very succinctly this way. Paul was a Jewish rabbi. And most, the vast majority of Jewish rabbis were married men. Paul was also it was believed to be a member of the Sanhedrin, sort of the top court, the upper echelon, the supreme court of Jewish law and ritual and such. And all the Sanhedrin were required by law to be married. And so there's a really good chance that Paul uh, was currently single, but he had been married. And Paul writes, and he, he asserts this, this very idea that we resist, that we confuse in the church. But he says that singleness is a gift from God. 
Marriage is a gift from God. From the beginning of the created order to Jesus Christ himself to the later writings of the early church, marriage is a gift and singleness is a gift. Now here's the funny thing about us. Many of us possess a gift that we do not want. We want what the other people, it's the classic case of the fly on the window pane. Everybody, not everybody, but uh, many of us want to be on the other side. And Paul is writing and he's saying that they're both a gift. Now, do we hold marriage in high esteem? There's an old fable, an old legend that preachers tell from time to time that there was a married couple and the wife dies and they have a funeral in a church and the preacher preaches the eulogy and the pallbearers carry out the casket with the wife in it and they, on their way out of the church, they, the pallbearers in the casket, they bump the casket against the wall. Didn't mean to, but bump. And this, I don't know if you believe the story, most people don't, but, but she, they heard a noise inside the casket. They heard movement and rustling and they opened the casket and this woman was coming back to life. And she, I know it's crazy, and she lived um, for several weeks and, and died. And they had another funeral, same church, same preacher, same pallbearers. And as they're carrying the lady out the back, she's in the casket, they're carrying her out. And the, and, and the husband jumps up and shouts, watch out for that wall. <laughs> it's easy for us uh, sometimes to poke fun at marriage and to say, hey, it's hard, it's difficult, it's not something that I want. Uh, live, local, and late breaking, not local, but live and late breaking and um, national, the statistics tell us that we're choosing to marry later in life. Any guesses? Um, 9.30, most of them got it wrong. But uh, what's the average age that a man gets married today? 30. What's the average age that a woman gets married today? 28. Do you know that that's, that's both of those are up by a couple of years just over the past decade? Now, percentage-wise, fewer and fewer people are even choosing this gift of marriage. In 1960, of the adult population, 72% of adults were married. Today, of the adult population, uh, barely 50% of people have chosen marriage. But God says that it's a gift. It's a gift when you're able to say, this is my husband, this is my wife, I am blessed with him, I am blessed with her. They are a gift from God. But he also says that singleness is a gift. By the way, real quick, I don't want to get, I'm going to save some of this, but why get married? Look at verse nine. Paul says this. I'm going to use this at the next wedding I do. But if they do not have self-control, they should marry since it's better to marry than to burn with desire. There's like, we could play an Elvis song, hunk of hunk of burning love and just, you know, wouldn't that be great? Here's Bill and Bill just can't control himself. Here's Mary and she's, she's burning. She's caliente. She's in fuego with sexual desire for Bill. Let's get him married really fast. You're all invited to reception in their honor. They won't be there, but you're invited to reception in their honor. Look, hey, just saying it. Paul's saying that there's, there's, a, there's a help. We're all sexual beings, but he's saying, it. look, this is weird, isn't it? It's really, really weird. This is different than stomach is for the food and food is for the stomach, that you're just a bundle or collection of appetites and you just must go meet them. By the way, question, why is uh, marriage falling in disrepair? Why are people choosing it not at all or later in life? Any guesses? I looked at what the experts said this week, the supposed experts. Many believe that it's because too many of us are children of divorce and we know the pain and we don't want any of it. And some believe, I certainly subscribe to this, because of hookup culture, it's become cheapened. 
And Paul is saying, as followers of Jesus, I want you to live in a different way. Now, what might be the, the benefits of being single? Before we get to verse 32 through 35, it's at the end, we'll put up in a second. Uh, the gift that he uses here in Greek is the word charisma. It's where we get our word charisma. Isn't that cool? Like when we talk about the gifts, like he's, he would later say, we'll get there in weeks. Weeks from now, we'll get to chapter 12 when he says, you know, uh, some of you have the gift of prophecy. Some of you have the gift of mercy. Uh, he, same word there he say, in the Greek. He, same word. He said, some of you have the gift of singleness. Now, if you're single, can I just say that as a church, we have not always loved and led you well. And we have made you feel like if you're married, you're on the varsity. But if you're single, you're on the junior varsity. And you as a single person, no matter your age, you're not on the JV team. You're, you mean just as much. And here's a little secret among churches. I have an inside view and I know other pastors. And here's what I can tell you. Churches wouldn't go. Churches wouldn't move. Churches wouldn't function without single volunteers. The number one demographic of serving in churches is single people. It's honestly single women. So men step up. We'll get there in a minute. But thank God for our single people. How many of you are single and you have people like me that are like, we got to fix you up. Come on in. We're going to fix you up. As if you're broken. I know a, a pastor friend who uh, he, he was single as a pastor well into his 30s. And he would tell the story of he would do weddings. And there was these uh, little old ladies would say, at, at every wedding. They'd say, well, guess what? You're next. And he told me one time he did a funeral. And he went up to the same old lady and says, guess what? You're next. <laughs> you're not broken if you're single. You're just as valuable Look at the opportunity you have. Everybody wants the gift they don't have. I understand that. But look at verse 32 to 33. It's at the end. I want you to be without concerns. The unmarried man is concerned about the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. But the married man is concerned about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And his interests are divided. The unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the things of the Lord so that she may be holy both in body and in spirit. But the married woman is concerned about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I am saying this for your own benefit not to put a restraint on you, but to promote what is proper and so that you may be devoted to the Lord without distraction. If you're single, your gift is flexibility and freedom and focus. And I would say leverage that for the kingdom of God. Leverage that the church needs you and the world needs you. As a pastor, we need you and lean into that. I was watching my wife um, several months back intersect with an, an old friend. And the, the, this friend of hers and mine is a little bit older than her. And they were talking. They had like, honestly, decades to catch up on. And they were talking. I and mean, we, we had kept in touch, but there was a lot of highlights that were missed. And I was just observing this woman who's single, never been married, talk about her missionary work and her involvement and the good that she's doing in this world today. And I remember thinking, isn't that a great story? And then I looked over at Susan. I'm like, you know, she's been married to me. She ain't been entirely focused. We've raised, if you don't know this, she's been for many, many years. Now, this is sort of past us now, but for many, many years, uh, she was a missionary to an unreached people group called the Green Children. And it was a, a difficult uh, group to influence for the gospel. But she was with them. I have been out and publicly, and I've introduced, my, when my kids were little, I've introduced them as a Ferrari and as Audi and as Maui because that's what I would be driving or where I would be vacationing if it weren't for them. Look, our attention has been very divided. We've had a calling in our lives and we've had to turn inward often and marriage can do that and family can do it, although it's glorious and it's a gift. Look, don't, don't mishear me, don't mishear Paul. But it, listen, there's a freedom and flexibility and focus that single people have. And so if that's you, accept the gift. I know it's a hard word for some.
but accept the gift that God has for you in this season. We'll, we'll talk more about it in just a little bit. And by the way, to the single people, some of the most dysfunctional, immature, messed up people you and I both know are married. And uh, Laura McAlpin and I, we, Foner Church requires if we marry you here or there, you have to do some pre-marriage counseling. And I remember when we did pre-marriage counseling, Susan and I, somebody told us at a conference, they said that marriage doesn't fix anything, but it exposes everything. And if you're in the grind of marriage, you know what I'm talking about. And so there's an ease and a blessing of singleness that I would want you to lean into if you're single. There's something called, in our day, called the campaign against sexual normativity. It's not designed, let me get out in front of this if you hadn't heard of it, it's not designed to promote plurality or tolerance. It's designed to create an anti-normative society. Paul was up against things, the church was in his day. We are up in part against this. A a well-known comedian this week said that he asked, what is it, chat, GTP4, what is it? Something like that. Any similar, tell me later. Any similarities, he said, is there any similarities between today's woke revolution and Chairman Mao's cultural revolution of the 1960s? And the voice answered back, how much time do you have? He said, in China, we saw a revolutionary thought, a revolutionary who thought he could do a rewrite, a page one rewrite of what it means to be a human. Mao offered his citizens a new way of thinking. He challenged all the citizens of China to throw off what they called the four olds. Y'all ever heard about this? Old thinking, old culture, old customs, old habit. And suddenly, almost overnight, for, for many people, many citizens of China, they felt like they were throwing what they believed in the garbage pile. And mercenaries, purgers, known as the Red Army, the Red Guard, went around the country and they put what later is referred to as dunce caps on people and it was public shaming and pointing out because these people were unwilling to submit to the re-education. I said it last week, I'm not a militant. It's spoken in love. There are harmful ideologies and worldviews that are circulating around. And I want to say to you in love, it's really said out of love, that you and I flourish and the, the society is better if we don't look at all the old ways. Now listen, there are things we need to throw off. Can, that, that's a whole other sermon. That's a sermon series. Put off the old man, put on the new, Paul would write. There's things about you. Put, put, put on the, clothe yourself with humility, with peace, with forgiveness, with forbearance, with the fruit of the spirit. Wear these things. Be kind and tenderhearted, on and on and on. Take off wrath and anger and malice, the works of the flesh, bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. There are things that, that we need to put off. There are old ways that we need to put off. There are Things written in the Bible that are civil and ceremonial, that are time-bound to the people and places that it was written. But I want to say to you, not to throw off all the old. In fact, what's best for all of society, including women and children, is that if we go back to God's created order. Because in Genesis 1 and 2, hold on a second. In Genesis 1 and 2, we get glimpses of the world as God intended. And I know we debate this. I have literally been in debates on college campuses during our time with Campus Crusade, uh, going back and forth with people much smarter than I about Genesis 1 and 2. Have you guys, some of you have never read the Bible, 
I know it to be true. You've never read the Bible or read through the Bible. I'm not even talking about the whole Bible, but just picking up the book and you read Genesis 1 and then you get to chapter 2 and you may have a question because it seems a little different. It's not a contradiction, but let me, let me help you. Genesis 1 is this 30,000 foot view. In Genesis 2, man, he's six feet away on the ground. He's right there. And in Genesis 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was formless and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then God said, let there be light. And then God began to create. And we talked about this last week. The apex of his creation was male and female. And God created. And here's the, to nerd out a little bit, here's a compound Hebrew word that means same but different. And it actually means, listen to this, it has the connotations, stay with me, that one leads and one helps. Now, Hear me, Susan and I have a, what many would describe as a traditional marriage. I don't force it on anybody. I don't, you know, go around and look in, in people's windows to see how they're living or if they should live like us. But I want to tell you what works for us. And in this, this Hebrew word, God is saying, um, and by the way, some of you, um, you get caught up on the rib part. You know, y'all know the story God created the, he formed Eve out of the rib and people are like, oh, the rib, I don't believe that. No, 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 you know. And um, I, I just say to people, don't get hung up on the rib. Get hung up on the fact that God created woman out of man's side and they are equal. He's not ahead of her. She's not behind him. One is not above the other. They are equal. And all throughout the scripture, that message is clear. Now, remember, it was written to, patri- in a, to a patriarchal world, world. There was polygamy and slavery and all these things. And that's a whole other series of sermons. But here we see from the very beginning that they're equal. We look to each other and we remind each other that we're equal. But there's this role of helper that's really important. We're going to talk about it in just a minute when we talk about reasons that God created marriage. But into this, God says, it is good for man not to be alone. And so he creates, he creates a helper and underline it, circle it and star it. In Genesis two, it says, this is why, if you want to know why God says some should get married, this is why a man should leave his father and mother and join to and cling or cleave to his wife, that they would become one. And we would learn later, mentioned it last week, they would be naked and unashamed. We're well into this sermon. I'm not going to go long, but I do want to give you four reasons that God creates marriage. What gift do you have? The gift of singleness or the gift of marriage? Reason number one is companionship. Back to the created order. God said, let us make man in our own image. Is that a little spooky? If you're even like, that's kind of spooky, isn't it? Anybody remember the old song? Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. I'm going to skip a part. God in three persons, blessed Trinity. I was a little guy in the back of a church pew like some of you are. And I remember singing that song before I'd read the scripture. I'm like, what? Trinity? What's a Trinity? God in three parts. What? You see, God gave this gift. And it's to be lived out specifically in marriage, a gift of companionship, where God himself, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is a triune God. And he's saying when you live together, when you're closest of relationships for married people, that would be your spouse. It's amazing how many people we talk to in marriage counseling who think somebody else can be really important in their marriage relationship, like equal or above their partner. No, that's your best friend. 
Don't mess that order up. And this word, here's the, here's the Hebrew word for it, God, and it's this one flesh. And we see this in the Bible. We see it in the, the Trinity. We see it in Deuteronomy 6, uh, the Shema, when God is saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One Lord. He is one, a triune God who is one. And this is his picture for us, that no one would live alone. Many of us will be married, but none of us will be alone, and that we will enter into this companionship. And so can I just say that marriage gives us a glimpse Marriage should give us a glimpse of what that's like and what God's like. And can I just tell you, to the woman sitting on the front row, the rest of y'all can listen to this, but she has taught me more about the gospel than anyone. She's taught me about my sin and my brokenness and God's love for me in spite of it all. There is one who loves me. She sees my brokenness and my flaws, and yes, it's mutual, but I will put the spotlight on me. But let me tell you, she's my best friend. And through her words and through her actions, she tells me that she loves me anyway. And she's not going anywhere. And this is a picture of the gospel. And this is a picture that our world needs. The second reason that God creates marriage is mission. When God created Adam and Eve, he put them in the garden and he said, what? Work it. Not exactly. Well, you did, yeah. He said, work it. He said, work it. He said, get in the garden and restore order. Subdue the earth and rule over it. There's the the birds of the air, the fish of the sea. There's the livestock, everything on earth and all the creature creature crawlers on the earth. I was watching last month, uh, the New York City has a new czar of rats. Did y'all see this? There's a woman and she looks bad. I mean, she looked bad in a good way. And she's like, man, we're going to knock out the rats in New York. And I've I've been there a lot. Good luck knocking out the rats. But there's something in us as humans, like we want to subdue the earth and we want to rule over it. And there's a, there's a God-given mandate uh, to do that. Here's what I want to say to you. Work is not the curse. Work was cursed. One more time. Work is not the curse. Work was cursed. And so God ordained work from the very beginning. And the part of uh, what it means to be dynamic as human beings is that we would all find meaningful work. Our culture says work to live, but the scriptures say live to work. Our culture says work is a necessary evil. You do that. Now, look, I'm a pastor, so my life is different in some ways. I'm not better or special or anything, but some of you are like me in that you have a weekend job. So I take Monday off, and then my week just starts building up until Sunday, man, I need a a, a nap undercover for a couple of of hours. But I watch you guys, and you're like working all week and then wearing yourself out. You can't wait for the weekend. And um, it's difficult at times. I really just need your sympathy. Can I get that? Can somebody just come? Just one person come give me a hug and then I'll be able to move on and get past this. But um, work is meaningful. Listen, you don't have to be a pastor. Adam wasn't a pastor. He was a gardener. I remember in COVID, early COVID, city of Jackson leaders asked the local churches here in this area if they would at the top of the hour, late in the afternoon, that we would play our church bells to let our healthcare workers know that we see them, we value them, and we need them. Their work matters. And we learned that our church bells don't work. (laughs) So we pulled a modular system out, JBLs, and put it out front. We had a staff rotation every day. One of the staff would come and turn on the peltry little system to tell you doctors and healthcare nurses and all that we love you and we need you, that your work matters. Find a mission. Men, look at me. Find a mission. Women, single women, single ladies, all the single ladies, 
Put your hands up. Should I sing Beyonce? No. Listen to me. Don't date a man or marry a man if he doesn't have a mission. What's the function of your life? What contribution will you bring to the world? It doesn't have to be grand or lofty or impressive. It doesn't have to be great. It can be simple. In fact, it should be simple. But have a mission. Know your function in the world. Know what you can bring. Know what you put, when you put your hand on the plow, here's what it brings. More than just a paycheck, but it brings some good and have a mission. And it's astonishing how many couples uh, live together and don't have a mission for their marriage. If the point of your marriage is your marriage, it will self-destruct. If the point of your relationship is your relationship, it will collapse. So find a mission. It doesn't mean a hobby. And men, it doesn't mean video games. But find a mission, the thing that you do that the world needs. And listen, our marriage is traditional. I'm not saying this could be gender reversed in your family. I think that's great. Some of you may disagree with that, but I, I think it's great. But in our marriage, Susan desires that I lead with the mission and she serves in a helping way. Her job is not to pull away from me, to pull things apart. Her way is not to diminish the work, not to slow me down, not to compete with the agenda that God has given me, but to support me in that. We meet couples and one of them is like, man, God has called me to the Himalayas to go and serve in the remote mountain regions. And the other one's like, God has called me to the country club. And listen, we need God at the country club and the Himalayas. And if you're a follower of Jesus, there's a mission field everywhere. But you can see how that's going to pull a couple apart. And so think about that and think about that for your marriage. And we're here to help you discover and grow in that regard. The third reason that God gives for marriage is not just companionship or mission, but sexuality. Look what Paul would say in verse 3 and 4. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise a wife to her husband. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. So here's this command that you've seen. Here's what you may not know. This is crazy in Corinth at the time. This was anti-cultural. Any guesses why? Because it's reciprocal. Andy Stanley calls it mutual submission or a submission competition. It's, it's mutual authority. Those are my words. A mutual authority. In other words, in that society, it was very common. You talk about who had the upper hand. It was men. And men, women couldn't divorce men. And men could divorce women for any reason. So the men had the one up and it was a one-way authority. And can I just ask you, anybody love one-way authority? Is one-way authority working for your relationship? Can you think of any relationship that goes well, that prospers, that's one-way authority? I mean, only thing I can think of is, is maybe extreme cases in the military when there's, you know, enemy forces coming or parent of a small child. You know, that could be a lot of one-way authority. But ultimately, Paul is setting up what was different for the day, mutual authority. And I want to say it again because some people are fuzzy about this and flat out wrong about it. But where, where the gospel goes, the genuine expression of Jesus Christ, the lives of all people flourish, especially women and children. And marriages are given these contours and these dimensions and they're so beautiful. And Paul is saying, you are equal, serve and love. And men, don't you think that you run over her in any way? You belong to her. She belongs to you. Fourth reason in closing is family. Back to the Genesis, back to the created order. God says, be fruitful and multiply. The RG, Robert Greene paraphrase is, make babies. 
Our culture makes two mistakes with children. One segment does not value children. A third of all pregnancies end in abortion. A third of all babies are born out of wedlock. Anthony Bradley says that we're on, we're on pace in a few years that close to 50% of children will go to bed each night without a dad. This past summer, I issued a statement on Roe v. Wade out of love, knowing that this is an issue that divides us. Christianity always takes the side of life, always. Study history, and let's continue to walk that out where families value but here's another side of it and I'm talking to you today definitely the 930 another one segment does not value children but another segment idolizes family the point of marriage of that marriage is children you exist to serve your children you sacrifice for your children you please them and you placate them you pander to them you don't want to offend them at all you want to give them everything they want the children your children are your little demagogues Oh, I don't want to offend you. Here's your little juicy cup. We're raising a bunch of narcissists who are good at soccer and have nice hair. You think that is love. That is not love. That is idolatry. And by the way, I worry about your empty nest years if that's the path you're on. When the marriage is unhealthy, what does a man do? He goes toward his work. When a marriage is unhealthy, what does a woman do? She turns to family. And she looks to those children for touch, for companionship, for all of that, because she's not getting it from, from, from her man. And by the way, a lot of preachers won't preach this, but I'm telling you, marriage is a need-meeting factory. And I would identify those needs and go hard after them. Serve the other in mutual authority, in a submission competition. The point of the family is not family. So we need to ask ourselves, why do we have kids? If the answer is to be happy, <laughs> you may wait till you may be waiting till graduation. Just kidding. As Lauren and the team make their way up, I want to point you to two documents that we're all familiar with. One document is the Declaration of Independence that says you have essentially the inalienable right to happiness. The Bible says that happiness is a gift. They both can't be right. So I want to suggest to you what you and I deserve is eternal separation from a holy God. And so happiness is a grace. It's a gift that he restores to us and he calls us and woos us and enters into a relationship with us. That is a grace and that is a gift. I said this at the beginning and we'll, we'll talk about this next week. Should I get married? Paul's gonna say later, hey, some of you don't get married yet because there's stuff happening in their culture. He's like, hold on a second. And the others of you, he's like, oh yeah, green light, you, you need to get married. Well, I, I put one of those verses up, get married. But most of us, many of us want the gift that we don't have gift that somebody else's has. We want someone else's charisma. So I want to close with this statement. This is the most practical summation of this chapter. Here it is. I 
thought a lot about this. Changing your situation or season will not make you a happier or more fulfilled Christian. Verse 17, look what he says. Let each one live his life in the situation the Lord assigned when God called him. This is what I command in all the churches. Verse 24, brothers and sisters, it's, it's more personal now, it's more fatherly. Each person is to remain with God in the situation in which he was called. Hey, single people, what's your number one prayer request? Oh, it's my discontentment at this stage of life. It's that I don't have a mate. Hey, married people, what's your prayer request? Oh, it's my marriage. It's on the rocks. It's hard. It's not giving me what I thought it would give me. It's not producing what I thought it would produce. And Paul is writing and saying, hey, here's what the gospel can do for all of us. It can say, see where, see where you are. And, and, and don't kill yourself or others trying to be at another place. So let me close this in prayer. Father, thanks for this morning. Father, thanks for the opportunity to not just sing, but come to the table to take the cups, to take the, the bread, to take the juice, symbolizing a body broken, blood spilled out. And Lord, wherever we are in our lot, saying this is my wife slash husband and it is a blessing from God or I want to be married or I don't want to be. Wherever we are, may we find grace in the moment, in the season, in the situation. And as a family of faith, may we help each other move into greater realms of contentment in the gospel. In Jesus we pray. Amen. If you would stand and as we sing, I want to ask every believer uh, we say this often, this is not about church membership or denominational affiliation. It's about, are you a believer? Have you made the confession that Jesus is Lord? And if you have, follow the person uh, in front of you to the table today. And you'll, you'll be given uh, two cups. Uh, grab those and uh, mindful of the sacrifice of Jesus, make your way back to your seat. And in, in the next few moments, when it's right for you, take the cup as an act of remembrance. Jesus said, 1 Corinthians 11, we're going to get there. This do in remembrance of me.